Hi, how are you? Hi, Jonathan. How are you? Yeah, I'm terrific. Uh, to get in the mood, I had a siesta. <laughs> Which is odd, because I play the violin, so I like to be fresh for orchestra. And tonight we're playing Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. Can I, I just get the pronunciation of your name, please? Yeah, uh, so it's uh, Philippe, and the surname is uh, Davilez, so, or... Davilez in Portuguese, Davilez if you prefer you know, more English. Uh, but yeah, Philippe Davilez. Davilez. I'm only sorry I haven't got round to talking about 1,000 miles to Jamor, a journey into Portuguese football. And that, it very much is. Uh, but it also goes by the title of Rumo ao Jamor. Rumo uh, Jamor in Portuguese, which means sort of like destination Jamor. Ah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's a very common Portuguese phrase. So, you know, it's like, this is where we're aiming for Rumo Jamor. That's, that's what fans will sing or... or or clubs will will use as a, as, a, as a slogan, sort of like this is where we're destination Jamor is the equivalent to you know we're, we're going to Wembley that sort of thing. Yeah, we don't really have that destination. We had there was a song destination Calabria, but I guess that's the European version as well. But yeah, we should popularize that phrase in English. So uh, today it's destination one thousand miles to Jamor, uh, which is a book that you wrote concurrently in Portuguese and English. It came out last year. Uh, on the Mighty Pitch publications. Uh, and it's a book with your name on it. And this, I suppose it's unfair to call it this, but this is like a hobby. It's it's a weekend passion. Um, was it light relief for you in the 2018-19 football calendar year? Um, yeah, well, it is, it's definitely a, a hobby is in the sense that I wouldn't expect to, to make a living off off writing this book, uh, no one, hardly anyone can make a living off writing in Portuguese. And it's such a niche subject uh, for the English market that I wouldn't expect it to, to make me rich overnight, uh, despite just because I published it in English. So, so yeah, it was very much a hobby. It's, it's a way of focusing and make, bringing my, my football passion to, 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 some, to some use besides, you know, just, the, just going to support my team on, on weekends. And um, and it, it was it was my way of trying to bring some of what is uh, quite common in English uh, in in England and in in uh, a more anglophone culture, sort of the football culture, the the culture behind football, the fans, the the, the celebration of the game, rather than just the the tactics and the scandals and the and the refereeing mistakes, which is a lot of what we get in Portugal. It's my, very much more the the Latin mindset. So I wanted to bring a bit of that, which which is starting to gain more fans in in Portugal, a bit of that culture to Portuguese football. And um, and so nothing like this had had ever been done in, in in Portuguese football writing, really. You know, there are a lot of books in Portugal about football. Uh, they're mostly uh, books about uh, players' biographies or books about clubs, the history of the clubs. They focus very much on the play itself and not so much on the fans and on and on fan culture. So, so yeah, that's what I wanted to do. I think I, I think I managed to uh, to capture um, the essence of it and the the party atmosphere that is the Portuguese cup, and um, and it was a lot of fun to do. Yeah, which, um, which was good as well. Whilst, of course, running through the noteworthy results uh, in this competition, it's the uh, Terça, the um, is that right? The the Copa Passa. de Terça. Uh, when I spoke to David Winner, he picked me up on the 
pronunciation of Meikles. So I've never said Rhinus Michaels ever again. It is Meikles. So because Portuguese <laughs> is one of those languages that I don't really know. A friend of mine did some missionary work in Brazil and uh, he set up a Facebook page, Bom dia, David's off to Brazil. So I know what hello is and I know what thank you is. But when I went to the Algarve in 2006, everyone spoke English. So I couldn't really yeah. learn much Portuguese. Obviously, I, I know um, Cristiano. I know that much. Um, and I know Mística. Uh, so I wanted to talk about uh-huh. the Mística of your club, oh Benfica, okay. yeah. uh, which you define okay. as friendship and solidarity. Do you think Mística has a translation in English? Or is it one of those words well, uh, that doesn't have a translation? I, I suppose you could translate it as mystique. Um, but yeah, it's sort of like the, the spirit of, of the club. Um, it's one of those words that everyone talks about it. All Benfica fans know what we're talking about when we say it. Um, you'd be hard-pressed to actually define the word itself and, and, and what it means. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's the spirit of the club. Um, and I don't think anyone would would go so far as saying that we're the only club in the world that has, you know, you know its own particular spirit and, uh, and sense of camaraderie amongst, uh, amongst fans. That's obviously not the case, but, but we do have a, a unique history. Um, we're a very special club, obviously. I mean, regardless of whether you like the club or not, its history and the way it was formed and the, the place it's, it's occupied in Portuguese football and in, and in European football overall does make it a very a very special club and uh, and so yeah that's that's what the mystica means and in in my book uh, one of the things that i discovered uh, because i didn't know this at the time not at least not in, in as much detail is that the term is actually borrowed from the students the, the group of students who formed the club were mostly uh, students from uh, a major orphanage uh, school in um, in lisbon gazapia uh, which would translate us as the pious house. So it was, a, it was an institution that took in orphans or people from destitute families and gave them a very, very good education that focused a lot on sports. And the students of the Casapia had this very, very strong friendship and very strong bond and camaraderie. And so they, they claimed that they coined the term mystica, which was then adopted by Benfica fans because the club was founded mostly by Casapia students. Um, and Casapia then, as a club, uh, formed later, because many Casapia students um, were instrumental in forming a lot of different clubs in Portugal. Mm. But then they actually formed their own club later on, and they still play. And they were one of the main clubs that I followed in my road to Jamod uh, when I wrote the book. I think one of the things that I've got from this, but apart from the, the foundation of Benfica, which are extraordinary, is this... Um club Casa Pia. Uh, my partner has a friend called Pia uh, and it's a lovely name. It's it, you, the, the plosiveness of the consonant makes it a very nice word to say but you start your journey with Casa Pia. You follow them for the first three rounds and it, it seems yeah. that yeah they're the forefathers um, of Portuguese football which as, as we know, has three big clubs. I'm not going to mention where Benfica finished this season, but it's third. Oh, don't worry. And, but I do want to mention just the, the pedigree of Benfica because I'm trying to read all the, all the 92 English clubs. Um, and one thing that I'm doing in the second year of the Football Library uh, is to try and expand my horizons to other clubs outside of the British Isles. And would you say 
that were it not for Bobby Charlton in 1966, Portugal, uh, well, they would have probably won the World Cup. Would they have won the World Cup? What's the, what's the general feeling? Could Portugal have beaten West Germany or Russia if England hadn't beaten Portugal 2-1 at Wembley in 1966? Well, we beat Russia in the, in the third oh, and fourth okay. place uh, game. So, so, yeah, obviously we could have beaten Russia. Could we have beaten Germany? I think that's a big question. I think, I think when you, if you can beat England at, at, at Wembley, then that's, you can dream about winning the World Cup. Um, obviously, England were, were favourites. They're a very strong team. That was our, our, our golden generation, at least until the current generation, which managed to win the, the Euro and, uh, and got into a, another semi-final of the World Cup in 2006, although then they lost the, the third and fourth place also against, no, sorry, not also, but against Germany in 2006. But the, I think what a lot of Portuguese fans remember uh, or have, been, have learned is that uh, Portugal really sort of did capture the fans in Liverpool where they were based, there was a change in venue. I think the game was meant to be in Liverpool. The game against England was meant to be in Liverpool. But there, it was, the venue was changed to, uh, to, I think it was in Wembley, but it, it was changed away from, from Liverpool. And so obviously, you know, there's any excuse would do, but that's the excuse that people grab onto. If they'd let them continue to play in Liverpool, they wouldn't have had to make the trip to Wembley. They, had, they already had a lot of the support of the, of, of the Liverpudlians who, who'd really uh, taken them to heart, uh, regardless of whether they would then support them against, against England. But at least they, they felt at home in Liverpool. And so if the game had been in Liverpool, who knows, maybe things would have been different. And it's very sad that at the time in the 1960s, the FA, bless the FA, they're trying now, but back then in 1966, women couldn't even play football. Let us not forget that. But uh, it was Goodison Park, uh, which was the big venue. I think the other German Soviet Union was there, so that they must have been switched. Um, but no Portuguese players could have signed for Everton or Liverpool because of that parochial mindset. But can you imagine Eusebio in an Everton shirt? He'd be like Richarlison now. Or, or Bernardo, uh, perhaps. But it, it, it's interesting. It's interesting that you mentioned that because Benfica only only allowed uh, signing foreign players uh, really quite late in its history in, in the in the late seventies. Um, until then, it was it was only Portuguese. Although obviously Portugal was at, at that point um, included the former colonies. So of course the likes of Eusebio and uh, and Coluna, who came from the former colonies, were were eligible to play. Um, yeah, there's a lot of speculation about what could have happened if Eusebio had been allowed to, to go abroad. He, 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 he was forbidden from doing so by the regime, oh. or at least that's what's... So, so the regime was interested in keeping him, keeping him in Portugal. What would have happened to him, I think, you know, he's obviously, he was an outstanding player. And I remember uh, when he died just a few years ago, uh, telling my, my kids I had, I had, I think, three at the time, and uh, even the youngest girl at the time was uh, Marianne, who's then sort of become the, the biggest football fan of my, of my kids. Um, was, she was a very small. She must have been about two. Uh, but even she, when I said, guys, you know, I called them around, I said, Eusebio uh, has just died. And the look on their faces, you know, they were completely distraught and they, they drew pictures of Eusebio. And we went to the stadium and we, we laid the pictures down uh, in places where people were, were leaving tributes to him. He really was... Uh, a part of Benfica's, uh, of the Benfica legend, and and very much a part of, of uh, Portuguese heritage. 
in fact, he was he was then laid to rest in the in the National Pantheon, where where sort of the, the great some of some of the great names of Portuguese culture and history have been have been buried. That being said, he was clearly was, you know a bit like a bit like Maradona. He was very clearly much more sort of the 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 myth of Eusebi was much more than the man himself. He himself uh, clearly didn't have much of a mind for money. Uh, the club supported him for the rest of his life, and even at the time when he was playing, he received a part of his a part of his uh, salary, and the rest was invested so by by the club in things that would then uh, sort of in real estate and so on. So that then when he retired, he had something to fall back on. But he was, you know, it's known that he he was. Um, I think you could probably call him an alcoholic. He had he didn't have a very healthy relationship with uh, with alcohol or. You know his social life would would be very questionable, but he was um, he was much more than that, obviously, because in our minds he he was you know he was still that guy who scored was it four he scored against uh, against North Korea. In did 66. he score all of them? He did score all of them. Okay, he scored yeah. the five goals against North Korea in '66. He's still that guy who who won us so many trophies, who won us uh, us Befica, uh, one of the, our European cups. And and he was true. He was magnificent. He was magnificent on the field. As a Christian, it, this is this has often presented me with a bit of a dilemma. Sort of how, how how should we look at these figures who are clearly they mean so much to people. Um, I mean, I went to his funeral, and and there were thousands of people went to his funeral. He means so much to us. Yet at the same time, we know that his private life was was actually uh, left a lot to be desired. Mm. Um, but anyway, sort of, we're we're moving off topic here. No, so so that it, 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 so that Maradona comparison is relevant. Um, it makes yeah, me think of Socrates and Garincha. I mean, it's very difficult to usurp Eusebio, uh, but the current guy um, who scored all those goals for Portugal and who's basically, if he goes to Madeira, people will kiss the hem of his garment. But the story of Cristiano Ronaldo is that a modern parable of Portugal? Desperately poor guy with an alcoholic father grows up to become best footballer. I love the line, um, Ronaldo's the best player on earth, Messi's the best player in the galaxy. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say it's a, it's a parable of uh, a modern parable of Portugal. I think it's, and I, I have an, an iffy relationship with Ronaldo. I'm obviously, he's a, he's, a, he's a stunning player. He's an amazing player. He's done so much for Portugal and, and we can only be thankful for that. He annoys me in that he is um, he's extraordinarily egocentric uh, and I, but I think then some people will say well you know how can you not be when you're that good I don't know um, I remember I remember when he played uh, the Champions League final here in Lisbon against Atletico for Real Madrid and Atletico were winning until until injury time uh, roundabout injury time I think that then Real Madrid tied the game in injury time. Ronaldo had a terrible game. He was, you know, he was nowhere to be seen. But then he scored a penalty in extra time. And when he scored the penalty, the celebration was all sort of me, me, me. He ran up to the camera, he took off his shirt, he, you know, he did all of his stunts. And, and I thought that was such poor sportsmanship. Um, sort of that's a bit of the image that I have of him in, in my mind. Benfica fans in general, uh, sort of the more diehard Benfica fans, um, do not forget that he gave us the finger when he was playing for Man United against Benfica in uh, in Lisbon on the seventh of December two thousand and five, and I remember the date because it was the day before my wedding, and I was I was there with my with my fiance wow. at the time, 
um, and and he was subbed out, and Man United were losing, and he and he gave the fans the finger on his way out because, of course, he was he was he were he was a Sporting Academy player, and he played for Sporting, and so although I I have it on on very good. Um, Sources that he himself was a was a Benfica fan when he was younger. I, I don't think you could really say as much of anything now. You know, when players fan go of himself. Pro. Yeah, exactly. But um, this being said, you know, the reason I wanted to, to 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 put this in the in before is that I think that Ronaldo is a parable of himself. I mean, I think he's incomparable. I I don't think the way he turned himself into what he is is the result of extraordinary dedication and hard work. It's not just natural, you know, natural talent. Uh, it's a lot, a lot, a lot of work, and and there's a lot to be said for him. Also, you know, he does a lot of charitable work and and so on, and and that that shouldn't be that shouldn't be forgotten. Um, so yeah, you know, he's got those those things that annoy me at times, but obviously I have tremendous admiration for for what he's done with his life and for for what he's done for his family. Insofar as being a parable for the country itself. I perhaps wouldn't go that far because right. I think he's that. That's what makes him unique is that he sort of broke that mold. Uh, he he he's a very much a self-made man, uh, and the typical Portuguese player I think is not like that. And so in that in that sense, I hope he he can be an example for for the next generations. Um, and I think he's got everything to to be an, a good example for the next generations. And it's it. You're very lucky that he's Portuguese. Someone said that he reinvented heading, he reinvented how to strike a free kick. Well, Lionel Messi is, is very good in that team environment. But arguably, because... Well, I'm, I'm telling myself in knots here, because I watched the Euro 2016 final in Wimbledon with an actual Portuguese person. Uh, and she got very excited. But when Ronaldo had to come off, I thought, well, surely that's Portugal done for. But then I didn't reckon on the team effort uh, and and everything going Portugal's way. So where were you when yeah. Portugal won that, Euro 2016? Well, I, I was I was at my sister's house uh, in uh, in Sintra watching the game with my father. My my eldest son was in England with my with my mother, uh, staying at my brother's house. So they watched it. They watched it in England as well. That was a, that was a very emotional moment for me because for for many years I followed Portugal uh, quite uh, quite with with tremendous dedication. I went to I went to watch one of the games in Euro '96 when I was 16 years old in England, Portugal, Croatia, and then we we decided not to buy tickets for the quarterfinals because we'd hold out for the semis. And then of course we were we we lost against the Czech Republic. Um, but the but then I went to a game in. Uh, let me see. Then that was '96. We missed '98. Then in 2000, I watched all the games. Uh, I, I traveled to Belgium and, and Holland, and, and I watched all the games. 2002, I went to South Korea and watched Portugal lose against South Korea and, and get knocked out of the out of the tournament. And between that, I went to see a couple of Portugal games abroad. I didn't go to any of the 2016 games, but I sort of I felt that it was something that. I deserved in because of all the effort that I'd put into it in the years when we didn't win, um, and uh, and it was great, you know, to, to to be able to celebrate that with my kids and and uh, and just tell them, look, you know, this is this is unique. This is something that has never happened. It may never happen again. We you know we're not Germany. We don't win this every every second every second edition. We're not Brazil. So so that was fantastic. Um, but because of what you what you said about when he was when he was replaced in the 2016 final. Uh, yeah, I think it, it was it was wonderful that we managed to win it without him in the final. 
uh, and the way he celebrated the win, the opposite of what I said about him a little while ago. I mean, I was saying he's very self-involved, but on the other hand, he didn't sulk and go away and think, okay, you know, they won it without me and I missed my big opportunity. He was there on the sidelines. He was egging them on. So it was very much a team effort. And he, he was part of it, even if he was, even if he was off the pitch. Um, on the other hand, some, some fans are starting to wonder if he is now not sort of turned into a bit of that curse of having the, of, of having the best player in the world who is reaching the final stages of his career. And that no coach in his right mind, having Ronaldo available, will not play with him in the starting 11. Yet I sometimes wonder if, even though he's still a fantastic player, the team would not perhaps perform better without him on the pitch, or at least without him on the pitch uh, 90 minutes. Uh, Because when he's on the pitch, it's all him. The ball has to go to him. He has to be the one who takes the free kicks. He has to be the one who's, who, you know, whenever a player gets the ball, they're looking for Ronaldo. And we had a couple of games without him, you know, for those about that uh, League of Nations or Nations League Cup that they that they invented a couple of years ago and, and um, some of the qualifiers. So I think we, we played without him and, and we played very, very well. So I think Portugal has a fantastic team as a team. And at the moment, we've got Ronaldo. When he goes, I think we'll still be very, very good. The question is whether at the moment, even though he's fantastic, uh, his sort of omnipresence in the team isn't actually hindering the team. Although, you know, he did have a, a pretty good tournament this year. He scored he scored loads of goals. Some of them were were, were penalties, but, you know, just still, he, he put them in. Not everyone manages to do that. Um, but, yeah, I think that's something that some people are starting to question. But then again, you know, he's... He's God, and you, you can't you can't take him off. You can't take him off the team. Uh, that would be that would be a national scandal. So it's a, it's a tough situation to juggle for for the coach. I'm just looking to see who you're playing uh, for the World Cup qualifiers: Ireland, Azerbaijan, Luxembourg, Serbia. Oh, that looks fine. So um, come Qatar, and you're actually playing Qatar in a couple of friendlies. Um, in September and October. Obviously, Ronaldo will play in the World Cup next year. Being in Qatar will suit a hot nation. Um, I've been saying Brazil are going to win it. Maybe FIFA will lean on them and make sure they get an easy passage. But don't write off Portugal because there are some very good players. Four of them play for Wolves. What is your view of what Fosun and George Mendes and Gestifuti are doing to English football? Yay or nay? Oh God, uh, that's that's uh, tricky. I, I'm 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 out of my depth there. Okay. Um, I think that George Mendes, as an agent, has far far too much influence on football in general, and and uh, and that goes very much for Portuguese football, um, in the sense that some clubs and and Benfica has been suffering from that uh, in past few years there's been a lot of unrest amongst Benfica fans and uh, and opposition to to the current board and so on and I myself um, voted for an opposition candidate in the last presidential elections and I did so publicly and I and I can campaign for him but um, there's very much the idea that the clubs are are in the pocket of George Mendes and he, he puts he places players wherever he wants he takes them away he sells them and, and basically, he's almost running the, the football dimension of these clubs more than the board themselves. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's, you know, one of the big problems with modern football. I don't know what the solution would be, but, you know, the, the salaries just keep skyrocketing and the, and the over-influence of, of, of agents 
is is definitely a problem. Uh, don't ask me what the solution would be, but I think it's definitely a problem. Yeah, I mean, it was incredible. I looked at the your Euro twenty twenty squad. Uh, three sporting players, four Wolves players. How many Benfica players? Uh, well, Haka was there. Yeah, just the uh, one. Just the one. Oh, yeah, just the one. So yeah, Pizzi wasn't wasn't called up. So yeah, just the one. Incredibly, my team Watford over the last five years have this injection of Premier League money. Uh, so we've been able to see Andre Carrillo, um, who came through Benfica, Peruvian, I think. Uh, he had a couple of good games. Uh, but Benfica's squad this year uh, includes two former Premier League defenders. So here's an example of Portuguese football living off the scraps of world football, having sold the Golden Geese. Otamendi Vertonghen. Is that a championship winning defensive partnership when their combined age is 500? Well, I think, I think the fact that we, that we placed third this year is, is, is your answer to that. Um, yeah, and not the Mendy. What's more, was was uh, his, his sort of the golden years of his career were in, were in Porto, so oh. so that didn't endear him very much to to our fans. Definitely, that's the problem. You know, we've we've got we sold Bernardo Silva to Man City before he ever even had a chance to play in our in our in our main team. Um, and and we just keep doing that. You know, we, it's like and it's it's a running joke in Portugal that players when they show any promise in the youth leagues, we'll sell them the next year for 15 million. It's like a set price. And, and then sort of the, we, no one's really sure where the money goes because then, then we, we buy loads and loads of players and it's, we've become sort of a, a revolving door of players coming in and going out. And, uh, and then there are not really very many results to, to show for it. We had, we had some great years. We won the, the league four years in a row and, you know, that was fantastic. We could have won a fifth, but they decided not to invest in the team. It would have been a, a very important win because the only club in Portugal ever to win five in a row was Porto. So you know that would have broken that record for them, or tied tied that record. But yeah, and then the the past few years have been have been terrible, terrible, and just wasting. This year we invested almost a hundred million euros in 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 supposedly strengthening the team, and we ended up worse than the year before. At the set, in in the meantime, our president is involved in in numerous legal cases a uh, few of which have anything to do with Benfica but have to do with his with his private uh, financial life and um, and we, there's very much this idea that he's not he's distracted by all of that and that whilst he feels that whilst he is chairman of Benfica he is untouchable and so he's trying to prolong himself in, the, in that position for as long as he can. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a fantastic. It's a pretty bleak situation at the moment. Um, mm. We'll see how the next season turns out. Of course, if he could be with, with our size and, you know, we'll always be candidates to, to win the title. I think we had, despite the, the terrible results, I think we did, we did have a chance of winning it if, if we'd been a bit luckier at, at some points, but a lot of it was wasn't a question of luck. It was just uh, misorgan- disorganization and uh, and missing opportunities um, to sort of to, to do away with our rivals. We're speaking a couple of days before the quarterfinals of the Euro start. I imagine mm-hmm. uh, you will be excited watching Switzerland against Spain, not just because Spain are your shouty neighbours next door, but Haris Seferovic uh, is playing for Switzerland. Yeah. And uh, he seems to be the golden boy. Although with Adel Tarat in your sight, uh, there must be some frustration from the Benfica players. I don't know if you've seen that QPR documentary, which paints Tarat as the golden child who 
Neil Warnock indulges because he's such a good mercurial talent. But over the last six years, he's burned cold. Although I, I did hear there was a bit of a renaissance, but was that short-lived was, with Tarant? It was, yeah. He, he, he came in to the squad and uh, the idea was that he, he just seemed to put on loads of weight and uh, and just didn't do very well at all. And he sort of seemed to give up. You know, it's like he wasn't making an effort. He was, he was here on holiday. When we lost the, our coach... Um, What's the name of the, the coach now who's gone to Wolves? Oh, uh, is it Lage? Brunlage, okay. Yeah. Brunlage came in to replace uh, Rui Vitoria. Okay, so we, we, Rui Vitoria left, left. Brunlage came in to replace him, brought João Félix, who's now at Atlético Madrid, uh, into the starting eleven and turned him into the star of the team. And then he started to try and, and bring back Tarapta. And we kept saying, okay, you know, if this guy can bring back Tarapta and make a decent player out of him, then... And he's fantastic. You know, that, that shows that he is really a fantastic coach. And he did. He, he, he ended up by having a very good season last year. But then I think what seems to have happened is that he, he reached his peak. Is that he started playing a lot better, making a big effort. He was on the starting 11 or being a regular sub. Um, but he has, as you said, burned cold a couple of times. You know, it seems when he's very strong physically, but then it seems that his... When he's strong physically, his passing is off. He makes a big effort, but there just seems to be, there's always something missing. So it has been quite frustrating in that sense. Although this being said, you know, I, I, I will point out that I am, I don't consider myself uh, in any way qualified to comment on players and, and coaching and tactics and so on. It's just, I know nothing about it. And, and, uh, and so all of these opinions are, could be very, very ill-founded. But it's just my perception, sort of watching yeah. the game with, with no coaching or even feigned coaching experience at all. Hey, 40,000 uh, English fans thought that after the Scotland game, Southgate should go, but no one knows anything. Yeah. And of course, this exactly. will come out after the Euro final. So who can say whether football exactly. has or hasn't come home? What do you think attracted Carlos Vinicius, whose agent is George Mendes, to spend last season at Tottenham, whose manager has an agent and best friend in George Mendes? That's, I think your, your question has the answer in it. And, and you could ask, why did Benfica decide to sell their top scorer? Was, it, was, he, so, was he even sold or was he, or was he lent? You know, I, I think I, he's, he's back yeah, at Benfica. George Mendes oh, is trying wow. to get him to go to Wolves, apparently. Why, why would you loan your top scorer? Either sell him for a good amount of money or, or don't, but to loan him? Uh, it just it doesn't make any sense, and it's obviously it's these decisions are being taken without any regard for the for the the best interests of the club, and those who should be uh, looking out for the best interests of the club, who are not obviously George Mendes, he's looking out for himself and, and making money and perhaps furthering the career of his players, but those who should be interested in the best interests of the club uh, have been dropping the ball. Uh, yeah, is and, there uh, is there pride in Lisbon for what Ruben Diaz has done? This year, because it seems from all the commentary and criticism I've read that it's him who helped Man City win the league. I think there's a lot of pride amongst amongst Befica fans. I think we've always known that he's that he's a very good player. You know, he made a couple of glaring mistakes here and there, uh, especially at the end of not of this season, the the previous one, um, giving away penalties and things like that unnecessarily, which which cost us quite dearly. But he's clearly a, a very very good player, and and we've. You know, we saw him rise up through our youth leagues, uh, through our, our youth teams, and uh, and really managed to make a, a name for himself. So we had no doubt that he'd be that, he, that he'd probably do very well in in the Premier League, and and he has done. Um, but then, you know, it's the, the rivalry between Benfica and Sporting. You'll you'll always see this, and and then Porto as well. Um, 
if a big if a Benfica player, a young Benfica player gets gets sold to a major team, you'll have all the fans of the other two teams saying, "Oh, you know, that was a rubbish signing, and he's he's useless. He was only did well in Benfica because he was protected by the system." And you know, and and it's and we'll do the same. We, I, not me, but uh, a lot of Benfica fans will do the same uh, for for players from from the other two teams. It's. If that's you know it's a bit of the sad reality of, of Portuguese football. I suppose it's understandable. You know the, the rivalries get 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 that um, irrational. But when you have three such large sets of fans, obviously you know there are a lot of idiots on on any on any of the sides and and they'll waste their time doing that sort of thing. Indeed, uh, listeners may hear some babbling in the background. Do you sorry. think yeah, that I'm is sorry about that. that? No, no, no. It's it's your <laughs> child, not mine. Thank God. Um, do you think? <laughs> Do you think this child is the right audience for your kids' book about Benfica? Uh, yeah, definitely. Well, she, she's she's only uh, this is my Maria de Luz. She's three years old, and so she's still a bit young. But yeah, my uh, my seven-year-old uh, Joaquin has uh, has now started taking the book to to school to show his friends and to show his teacher. And yeah, hopefully that's. One of the ideas behind the book is to instill love for the team uh, in kids at a young age, but also to speak about you know the, the history because a lot of people will support Benfica because their family support Benfica because it's the biggest team, but uh, but not many of them will know the history and uh, and know the values of the club and how it started and how it started amongst it was founded by the poor uh, not only poor but but by sort of very very common people in Lisbon some orphan you know mix of orphans and uh, and whatnot and people who were just very passionate about sports and they managed to turn it into one of the biggest clubs in the world and so that's what I try. And, and uh, those are the values that I try and instill uh, through the book. Super. And that book is on the shelves of the Football Library. And you do, uh-huh. Philippe Davilez, get your Football Library card. Um, I don't know who you want. Did you want Eusebio on it, or would you rather have Rui Costa? I grew up watching Rui Costa. Uh, I have tremendous admiration for Rui Costa. A lot of fans are very disappointed with what he's done over the past few years. He was brought into the to the to the board of the club. He he was brought into the board of the club, and he since then, uh, amongst all of the bad things that have been happening, he's sort of been very silent. And we, we we were hoping that he would be sort of our representative on the board, as in someone who who does feel the club, who does have passion for the club, and he hasn't. Um, so that's been disappointing. We'll always have. The, you know his, his great moments, uh, though. But yeah, if uh, if I get my card, I think I'd like to have Eusebio on my you card. You got it. Definitely. Oh, you got Eusebio. Uh, the other big Portuguese figure we haven't mentioned uh, played for both Real Madrid and Barcelona. He's now one of the suits. Whenever FIFA or UEFA have a big caboodle, it seems to be him and Ricardo Carvalho are Portugal's guys, uh, and Couto, maybe Couto as well. But uh, Figo. Um, because he lived in Spain for so long, do you think he belongs more to Spain than Portugal? No, I wouldn't say so. In fact, I think uh, when when he went from Barcelona to Madrid and and the Spanish fans went went mental, uh, the Barcelona fans and called him Pesetero because he'd moved because he'd made sort of that forbidden move from uh, from Barca to Madrid. He he answered his critics when they asked him, "Are you a Barca fan or or are you a, a Madridista?" And he said, "I'm Portuguese." Good. Uh, so, so, so don't get me involved in your in your, in your petty petty rivalries. Uh, no, he's 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 very much uh, and he's a well loved Portuguese figure, even though he was you know 
I think he's loved across the board, even though he was a sporting player before he went abroad. He's, he's well admired. He was always a, a very good professional, obviously a fantastic player. And uh, so, yeah, I think he's quite uh, non-controversial. As you said, you saw a lot of football around the turn of the millennium, but Jude Bellingham is 18 years old, the England international. So he has no experience at all of Luis Figo. We're now in danger of that era, pre-social media, pre-broadband connection, football, uh, slipping away. A lot of people see Ronaldinho as this clownish figure who did all the tricks and has been wrapped up in legal problems. Pirlo is just the rich guy who managed Juventus for a bit. Um, Jonathan, I'll, I'll give you a good example of that. Yesterday, when we were watching uh, when we were watching England uh, here on here on television, I was watching with my with my sister in law and my my eldest son, who's fourteen, and others sort of milling around. And at one point, they focused on on the the stands. And my sister in law and I immediately said, "Oh, look, it's Beckham." And my son said, "Hey, it's Ed Sheeran." Ah, uh, yeah. And, and my sister-in-law and I looked at him and went, oh, for goodness sake. But yeah, of course, he has no idea who Beckham, who Beckham was. So, you know, we, we explained, uh, not that he, he particularly seemed to care. I'm sure everyone's gone through this phase, but that, that, that stage when suddenly you're watching a game and one of the guys who comes on to play is younger than you are, and you think, oh, I suppose that means that I'm never actually going to be a professional football player, even though you're already 19 years old and you've never played sort of seri- seriously for anyone in your life. I, you know, you still have that that dream in the back of your head that maybe one day you'll be on the pitch, uh, and suddenly you have to realize in shock that uh, it's never going to happen. Yeah, the comedian John uh, Bishop said he lasted until 37 before that dream <laughs> exactly. faded. And you're absolutely right. I think Henderson's the oldest England player, and he's younger than me. 